Welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. I'm Dave Rome. I'm Zach Edwards. And I am Kaylee Fritz. Uh, well, uh, surprise, surprise. We have a fantastic show lined up for you today, as always, discussing the latest and greatest in bicycle tech, taking deeper dives into bigger topics with some of the most prominent names of the industry. And in this episode, we're going to be chatting about a couple of interesting recent developments from SRAM, including its new super wide range mountain bike cassettes and a truly crazy idea for front shifting that we recently uncovered. We're going to have a chat with Trek senior product graphic designer Micah Moran on how the new Amanda came to look the way it does. And finally, we have a return of the What Bike Should I Buy segment where we're going to help someone buy an aero gravel bike today. Now, before we get into the news, Zach, I think we have all been hearing about this sort of mini bike boom that's been going on in the industry right now. And you run your own one-man service shop here in Boulder called the Boulder Gruppetto. And I've been wondering... Are you actually seeing this mini bike boom that we keep hearing about? And if so, how are things looking on your end? How busy are you? I mean, so I'm a bit different. I don't sell bikes, so I don't see that side of things. But I would say that I am quite busy. I don't know that I would necessarily say any more or any less busy than I normally would be in the summer. Um, here in Boulder, everyone always rides their bikes and always needs bike service. It's a bit different. Like usually this time of year is a lot of race prep and stuff for people traveling for the weekend to go do this or that race. And now obviously there's no racing happening. So just kind of more general service things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Same busy for sure. Yeah. I mean, in Sydney, we're definitely seeing like on the service side, things have just gotten absolutely mental over the last few months and shops are now at a point where bike sales are so, uh, so busy that the, the repair side, they're like two, three, even four week lead times. It's, it's not something I've seen before. Eek. Well, Zach, I'm also wondering how often has it been, I guess very recently, I should say, how many requests have you been getting from people asking about your thoughts on this new SRAM 1052 mountain bike cassette? I mean, how often does someone come in now with a modern 12-speed drivetrain and say, I don't have enough gears right now? <laughs> I have worked on a few Eagle bikes since that came out, but I've not had one person mention to me a 1052 cassette. Okay. I need it in All my right. life. I need yeah. that extra tooth. Mm. I only have 51 right now, and I feel <laughs> just deficient. Yeah, by very one lucked out. Tooth. Interesting. Every time Interesting. Well, it. to get everyone caught up on this, uh, that does lead us to our first bit of tech news. SRAM did just release its new Eagle Expanded cassette, Scrap. which has a 10. What, what, was that? What? what? Weird. I don't know. That's a terrible eagle sound. We'll have to get something better than that. Hmm. Oh, I think we should use that. I think, I think we're using that one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway, so let the Australian do eagle funny. noises. We don't really have eagles here. Can we get like Fun. a can we get like a magpie sound or like a what what? I think magpies just come and attack your eyeballs. Funny mm. side story. My wife thought that the biggest cog on the cassette was actually called the eagle cog, <laughs> which I really like. So yeah, she would like literally. We'd be riding along, and she'd be like, "Oh, I had to put it in the eagle." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> you know, oh, she yeah, might know. yeah, soaring out, up this you know? climb. <laughs> so mm. now we make an eagle noise, which we don't really know what eagle sound eagles make, but we make you know a noise like a bird every time she goes into the or I go into the eagle cog, and I like thinking about it that way. Uh, um, Kayla, I think this is where you're going to have to just drop in the uh, the random whale noise, and just we're just going to have to revisit that one again. <laughs> 
never never gets old anyway anyway so this new cassette SRAM's previous Eagle 12-speed cassettes which are also used pretty popularly on gravel bikes anyway uh, it previously had a pretty massive 10 to 50 tooth 500% range and now this new one has a 1052 what is the story with this thing Dave so yeah, I mean it's it's basically what you just said. They've added an <laughs> extra two teeth to the biggest cog. The rest of the cassette is basically Eagle. unchanged, which means now when you jump from your eleventh um, gear to the twelfth gear, uh, so your your second easiest to the easiest gear, you have a ten tooth gap. So it goes from a forty two all the way to a fifty two tooth chainring. So it's a it's kind of a throwback to old like Shimano Mega range in a way. Well, or like with, front shifting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a big jump. Really is. Yeah. So I guess, you know, that that tooth uh that big cog, the eagle, the bird, is uh it's designed <laughs> as your bailout gear. Um but the theory with this is not necessarily to give you an easier climbing gear, but it's to perhaps allow you to go up a size in chainring. So you you know, you can gain, you can broaden the range of your gearing without giving you uh, yourself an absurdly low gear. Interesting. And, uh, well, I guess this is kind of going to be more a concern with the folks on the mountain bike side, since in gravel, you can't run the 12-speed mechanical Eagle Ridge Railer. Um, but for people running gravel with an Axis mullet set set up right now, can you just drop on this cassette without changing a Ridge Railer or anything else? Yes, so the newest uh, Axis Eagle derailleur had a newly updated geometry when they when they released it, uh, and that geometry works perfectly well with this new 52-tooth cassette. Uh, for anyone with Eagle Mechanical, uh, SRAM is recommending to upgrade to the new versions of these derailleurs, which have the, sh uh, the same geometry concepts as the, the AXS derailleurs. I think I see a question from the audience. <laughs> yes, I think I, I think I got myself in a loop there. I forget what my question was. Oh, Sorry, come Cam. on! It was about something we were talking about like five minutes. So ago. yeah, so it's if fine. you've got wireless shifting, you don't need a new derailleur. If you have mechanical shifting, SRAM say you probably do for best performance. I remember what what my question was. So, you know, we're just sort of thinking uh, hypothetically here, philosophically. I don't know. At what like where does this end? You know, like what's What's the grim donut of one by drivetrains? Like, what, where, where, when, where when is the those... cassette too big? <laughs> well, I mean, at some point, yeah, it's going to overtake the tire diameter, right? I mean, like, like you know, so for those not familiar with the grim donut, uh, our our colleague over at Pink Bike, Mike Levy, built this totally ridiculous mountain bike, basically taking all of the sort of geometry trends and just pushing them to the extreme. So, like, what is the equivalent here? And I actually asked this exact question of the SRAM guys not that long ago. But like, what what is what's the grim donut of one by drivetrains? I mean, are we going to see a sixty tooth like cassette eagle ring? What where does it stop? I mean, I just want to get to that end point sooner than later. Like every year, they're like, oh, we added a tooth, we've added a tooth, and right. you need a whole new group set. And now, just it's like just go all the way. Yeah, I want <laughs> I want a nine sixty cassette and be done with it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's I'm, getting to a point where you're kind of starting to, I mean, we would have thought of, we, we thought a 42 tooth was ridiculous back in, in 11 speed days, right. right? So, I mean, it's hard to predict these things, but at a point going bigger and bigger on your chain ring, just because you can with the larger cassette, 
you know, you're going to hit a limit where that chainring is going to start hitting obstacles once again, like we had the same issues when we were all running triples. So, right. I mean, I think we're getting pretty close to that where like a 36 tooth is about the limit of a chainring size you want on your mountain bike. James? You know, you just, you just got to wonder, like it's 12 speed right now. I mean, Rotor has their 13 speed set up and, you know, it'll go 14, 15 maybe. Like, you know, how much more can you cram on there? And, you know, or, or maybe we should just have fewer gears in the back and like maybe add one up front. Could you do that? Like, no, I'm really waiting for the reinvention of the front like derailleur. Like a rear derailleur, oh, really? but on new the marketing front? spin on it. Wait, they had that already? Really? <laughs> well, that's what we're talking about next, right? Oh, the reinvention oh, yeah, of the actually, derailleur. yeah, it is. Push look, a button look, and look it moves the chain. Wonderful segue. Well to done, a whole Kaylee. other range. In other SRAM news. Uh, a new to us contributor Alan Cote, who's actually who uh, actually is a pretty longtime bicycle industry journalist guy. Uh, he dug up an interesting patent application from SRAM that incorporates not one, not two. But three wireless electronic derailleur things that are built directly into the outer chain ring of this crank set that they are proposing. So basically what you have here are like these two little flipper wing things that push the chain off the outer chain ring when you want to shift into the inner chain ring. And then even crazier, when you want to go back from the inner to the outer chain ring, you have these like five telescoping spike finger things that extend out to physically lift the chain from the inner chain ring to the big one. Can I just point out that Zach is actually like pissing himself right now? <laughs> I mean, he, he is. Yeah, he it's is. quite funny. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the patent description and the pictures and everything are completely insane. And like, even that description that I just gave, I mean, it, it sounds incredibly complex because it is that there's all these electronics required. There are sensors built into the thing that, you know, because the crank set has to know where in the rotation it is so that it can kind of like time the movement of all these things. Um, and, you know, who knows how heavy or expensive it'll be or like if SRAM even has any intention of actually coming out with this thing. But I, I, I don't know. Zach, I guess I'm going to start with you. What what do yeah. you think of this thing? Like if someone, if this thing actually became a product and it walked into your shop and someone said, hey, can you help me figure this thing out? Like what what are your thoughts here? I mean, I, first, I should preface by saying I really appreciate outside-the-box thinking sometimes. But this just seems like one of those things that's very much overcomplicated when it doesn't necessarily need to. Um, it's also kind of funny to me that SRAM's whole push the last, what, five years has been one by one by one by one by, which essentially stems from their front derailleurs not working all that well. And now they're trying to reinvent the front derailleur rather than just make a very simple thing work well. Well, to in, 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 in SRAM's defense, I mean, I think I, I don't think it's really going to be a surprise to anyone who's written both that, no, I mean, SRAM's front shifting is definitely just not as good as Shimano. But, um, I mean, like I said, in fairness to SRAM, I mean, Shimano also makes it extremely, extremely difficult for other people just based on all the patents that they hold for everything. Because, you know, if it wasn't for all that, it really wouldn't take much for SRAM or anybody else to basically just copy everything that they've done with their chain ring shaping and profiling, like the front door cage uh, geometry and stuff like that. So, like, is this basically Shimano forcing their hand? And, you know, is, is this sort of SRAM's effort to kind of differentiate themselves or, like, try to figure out a way around Shimano? I mean, that was always the brilliance of one by, right? Is like SRAM kind of came to this realization we can't win this battle we can't win the front shifting battle because yeah it's, it's not like they don't know what they're doing it's not like they're dumb it's not like they're bad engineers it's that right, but shimano literally... owns the field 
yeah, Shimano owns all the patents and they can't really do anything about it. And so they basically just said, you know, okay, well, just go to one buy and we'll market it really well. And people will realize, particularly in certain types of riding, like mountain biking, that actually this is way better. So, I, you know, I think that they kind of just sidestepped the, the fight for a little while. But at some point, they do have to, you know, we're joking about 60-tooth rear cassettes, right? Like, that's not really feasible. At some point, two chain rings up front makes a lot of sense. And you have to have some method of changing them that is, you know, that works. And so if this is their solution, this is probably one of a number of solutions that they're playing with, I would imagine. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of with Zach. Like, I, I appreciate anybody who's willing to sort of think outside the box and look at these things differently. This one looks way overly complicated, but maybe there is a, a simpler version of, uh, you know, some brilliant little solution that we're not thinking of that is related to this that we could see sometime soon. That'd be cool. Um, just on this, let's let's back up a little bit. Why? Why are they doing this? Like, so we've we've discussed the patent issue and the fact that, you know, they haven't really mastered front shifting up until this point. But, I mean, in the patent, wasn't wasn't there some reference to the fact that, you know, frames are forever becoming more um, restrictive as far as front shifting and space for front derailers go? Is that is that sort of the key issue here that they're trying to overcome with this, this design? Well, I think it's a couple things here because, one, I mean, on the mountain bike side, I think, you know, you don't really have people complaining that, current super wide range cassettes have jumps that are too big. Like you don't hear that a lot, at least in the kind of like just in the amateur enthusiast world. And generally speaking, I think most people seem to agree that there is either enough total range in what's offered right now, or, you know, there's enough flexibility in chain ring sizes and stuff like that. That for the most part, I mean, people can be pretty happy with a one by setup off road. I mean, on road, it's still a different story either you basically have to make the choice between getting as much range as you think that you need or having sufficiently small gaps that you want. Um, like there's really no no way to get both. I mean, and you know, the, the system that Rotor has with their 13 speed one by setup, I mean, that that is obviously closer because you are adding another step in the middle. Um, but even then, like you still have a bunch of compromises to deal with there. So I, I think this is probably at least a hint that SRAM, you know, at least internally anyway, maybe doesn't really believe that one by, at least in their current iterations, is ultimately going to be the way that road or drop bar bikes in general go in the future. And for sure, I mean, the, the front derailleur geometry is a limiting factor in terms of bike design. So, I mean, if you can get rid of that completely and, you know, free up the design window for frames and still retain the ability to shift between two chain rings, I mean, in concept then anyway i mean this is kind of cool yeah super cool I can i just uh, genuinely super cool it's just really complicated which is yeah which is concerning yeah the other concerning thing obviously they're just drawings but looking at just the drawings the the front derailleur mechanism it's not front derailleur but the mechanism shifting mechanism and the chain rings are appear to be all one thing so now not only do you have to have a disposable power meter when your chain rings wear out but when you wear your chain rings out you also need new shifting can I just can I just make one quick request for SRAM? Um, can they please put like an audible beeper in it and make it have it uh, do pinball machine sounds? Oh, <laughs> oh, that'd be so good! That'd be so good because basically it does look like a little pinball flipper. Yeah, yeah, that would be yeah. pretty great. Or at least you could go in the app and like make it so that it does that. 
Pick your noise. Yeah, you can yeah. like choose what type of pinball machine you want it to replicate. Could yeah, make an eagle noise every time. I mean, you know, SRAM could really keep going going with this, you know, kind of ocean animal theme. I mean, like, you know, we had the whole whale whale fin thing with that 404 NSW. And then with this, I mean, it could potentially be the flipper, right? Like it could kind of like harken yeah. back to the old Shram TV dolphin. show about the dolphin, right? Yep. Who could make a dolphin noise? Nope. They like kind of laugh, right? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really know. It could, I'm but gonna, you know, the, the the logo could be like this little smiling dolphin thing. It could be super cute. <laughs> Pro if you had the dolphins up front and probably eagle on the back, would the eagle eat the dolphin? <laughs> oh, oh, like oh. trying to attack it. Hmm. That that would make for a very Maybe interesting and self-contradictory ad campaign. <laughs> hmm. Well, we'll have to get back to that one because, again, SRAM, of course, had no comment to make on this when Alan approached them to you know see what was going on here. And we, we are just going to have to wait and see what this becomes, if anything. So we will find out. But in the meantime, it is quite interesting. You should head over to the site and look at the patent drawings and read about how this thing is supposed to work. And then feel free to comment as to whether or not you think it actually would work. So we'll see what happens here. So finally, on the news front, uh, a far less controversial introduction or you know, a little bit of news here. So Trek just introduced their new Emonda, you know, their long-standing premier climbing bike that has now, I guess as a surprise to basically no one, uh, has now gone kind of aero. Um, you know, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time here discussing the bike itself since you can get all the nitty-gritty details about it either in the written article on the site or in the YouTube video that we posted about it. But um, I do want to talk about kind of how it looks, specifically the paint job that they've come up with because, you know, Trek has always had this custom Project One program where you can, you know, can, you know, choose a whole bunch of different colors and patterns and that sort of thing. And they also introduced uh, kind of a new higher-end range of paint jobs. Uh, so they've had this Project One Icon collection for quite a while, and they have new versions of that now. And uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but they they look pretty sweet. And looks super yeah. sweet. I mean, I'm a bit biased, but the women's Trek Segafredo team colors look really good. It's awesome. I mean, that kind of like pearl white with that kind of like pseudo no, it's, zebra it's pattern now. blue logos and everything in the seat mask it looks fantastic new one's black it's, yeah it's, it's not sweet. white anymore oh what yeah it looks super good oh man we haven't even seen it yet have we uh i think they posted it on their website or maybe social media or something yeah. oh but does ruth have ruth's one got one waiting for her at the service course right yeah it's in europe Ooh. but oh, soft photos last year <laughs> well i mean <laughs> If if it somehow looks better than last year, then I'll be pretty impressed because the one last yeah, year was pretty I would, awesome. I would say it does. Hmm. Anyway, well, one of the people who is behind all of these super cool paint jobs is Trek's senior product graphic designer, Micah Moran. And I was pretty curious how they come up with all these cool paint jobs and different color schemes and patterns and stuff. So I rung him up the other day to pick his brain on basically how they come up with this stuff. And as far as I can tell, it did not involve him smoking a bunch of weed and just hiding in his office somewhere but maybe he just didn't talk to us about that so, anyway. is it legal there I, I think it's illegal in wisconsin it, he's not in colorado I'm, I'm pretty sure it was also illegal at like you know the disney studios back in the day too and like acid was pretty illegal back in the day and from what i hear that didn't really stop them from coming up with some of that stuff because let's just admit it a lot of the disney stuff is pretty wacky and not something that you would have come up with on your own if you were sober. 
True. Anyway, like the Grim Donut. Like the Grim Donut. Like the Grim Donut. Uh, we are you not going to. We're not going to do a little detour on uh, Mike Levy's habits. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> let's hear from. Let's hear from Micah. Micah, thanks for being on with us on the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. Uh, I can't remember the last time I actually saw you in person now. Yeah, it must have been uh, some place, uh, maybe at headquarters at a launch, or maybe we bumped into it at a show. It seems like we cross paths every now and then. I, th- I think so. I, yeah, I think, it, I think it was at a launch, and uh, I can't remember what, what bike it is now. Everything sort of seems like Groundhog Day at the moment, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> But you are the senior product graphic designer for Trek Bicycles and, you know, primarily tasked with uh, basically drop bar bikes, mostly. And uh, you are the perfect person that I want to talk to you about this subject matter today, um, because I've always wondered, you know, when I see a bike on a shop floor or a brand's website, you know, I always wonder how exactly did that bike come to look the way it does in terms of graphics, colors and paint schemes. Um, So, you know, how do you figure that out? I guess first and foremost, I mean... How do you figure out colors for an upcoming model year? Like who decides what's going to be hot? Like you know, where do you draw inspiration from in general? Yeah, absolutely. So in regards to color, uh, it comes down to a lot of research. And some of that is research that we pull as designers. And some of it's research that actually gets pushed onto us from, you know, dealer feedback or the industry. So to kind of break those into two different categories, some of that research that's uh, that's pushed to us might come from dealer feedbacks we're doing lots of visits with them, roundtable conversations. Um, we have a lot of survey tools where we can capture what they're interested in, and they provide us a lot of good feedback about what the customer wants. Um, more on the information that gets pushed to us, there's actually, believe it or not, a lot of trend reports, um, like subscription services that a lot of major companies uh, will subscribe to. And they are very good at predicting trend forecasts. However, Sometimes you got to be a little careful with them as well. I've been to some trade shows where the colors are being unveiled and all the designers sit down there with their notebooks and pens and they're just kind of frantically, you know, recording all the stuff. And that might be why sometimes you'll see a whole collection from one company to the next company to the next feeling the same um, because they're all tapping into that research data pool of the same information. Uh, For us, though, one of my favorite tools is uh, Project One. So we're lucky enough at Trek to have this amazing bike customization program, but the data that that brings us of what the customers are actually wanting to see on their bikes, what they're designing, um, tons of information that we can look at to see um, what people are asking for and also reach out to them directly. Ah, interesting. I mean, I guess you already answered one of the questions that I was wondering about, which is, you know, why why it does seem that almost industry-wide that a lot of color or that a lot of colors are somewhat pervasive across a whole bunch of different brands so you said that there are kind of like these like trend subscription services and that sort of thing i mean who i mean who are those people i mean how do they decide how do they know what's what's going to be hot yeah well they're kind of doing what we're also doing um on the information that we want to pull out but they have lots of people to deploy to go to all of the different you know, trade shows and see things from different industries from, you know, outdoor sports, action, uh, automotive, fashion, uh, even music festivals. They're really just covering, you know, the globe with people who are looking and just seeing people's habits. What are they doing? What are they wearing? What are they responding to? So I think that's kind of the second thing where we might get that from some experts, but 
you know, designers, we we're experts on the subject too. So we're also traveling around to all kinds of different trade shows, uh, alphabet soup from ISPO to SEMA, different auto shows. Those are a really nice place to see what's happening, uh, in paint on, um, bicycle that could translate over to bicycles. So, um, yeah, constantly looking at that type of research as well. Instagram is another great tool. Um, it's a place where you can really just dive into people's habits and see what people are responding to. And I think, yeah, collectively designers, we, we tend to do a lot of research and look at the same places to get that information. Cool. Um, I mean, for you personally, as a, as a designer, I feel like whenever I've gone to a company or, you know, walked into a studio, that sort of thing, there's always, um, what is it called? Like a dream board or something like that. Um, I feel like I always see like this big cork board thing where everyone has, you know, like put up with little pins or magnets or whatever, like just little images of just things that they, you know, kind of start their fancy or kind of they draw in, in, inspiration from. I mean, do you, do you do stuff like that? Absolutely. Yeah. We call them mood boards and they're just that it's um, a collection of images or ideas or designs that elicit a mood or a feeling. Um, so we'll put those together when we're looking at something real targeted, but we'll also just see things in the world where you say, man, look at that. That's a really interesting color. Or look how these people combine something together. And we'll take that. We'll pin it on the magnetic board behind us. We'll build those and physical environments where they're, we're constantly looking at those daily for reminders. But we also use digital tools. I mean, the, the Pinteresting and collective collecting of images that's out there, there's all kinds of tools um, that we're constantly using uh, across the designers at Trek to share what we're seeing and what's inspiring us. I want to come back to the, the Project One thing because that is something that's super interesting that I hadn't really thought about from Trek um, because, you know, I've always gone to... Uh, I guess basically since year two, I've gone to the you know NABs, the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, and you know I've always thought of it in terms of kind of being a bellwether for like a predictor more more for you know sort of the types of bikes that people are are looking for and the types of bikes that are going to be popular in the mainstream. Just because you know pretty much by definition, if someone's buying a custom bike, oftentimes they're getting that from a small builder because they can't get it from the mainstream. Um, and it seems like Project One sort of provides the same thing for you as far as, you know, kind of colors and graphics and that kind of thing then, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it really is catching those same people who want something maybe a little bit different. They maybe have some ideas and, and tastes that aren't being supplied by some of the mainline opportunities. Uh, so it's always really fun to see what creativity people will you know, put forth into that. Uh, we manage a color portfolio, if you will, of about 50 colors that go into that program. And we're always changing and developing those on a year to year basis, figuring out what's, what colors, you know, maybe are not in favor and where some of the trends are so that we're keeping it fresh. But one of the things is, you know, when you're combining three different colors, say on a bicycle, there's all kinds of combinations that maybe we haven't actually prototyped. And, one of the real benefits of having the factory in Waterloo is we just walk down the hallway and I can see things running down the line that, you know, maybe say, oh, look at those three colors combined together. I wouldn't have thought of that, but this is, this is really, you know, exciting. So it definitely adds the ability to bring in some more bespoke colorways into our, our lineup. So how do you keep track of that? I mean, do you have like a little database or something that, that shows sort of what, 
types of colors people have gone with and then you sort of look back and say like oh that ended up being really really popular or that sort of thing or is it sort of more of a subjective thing like when you're looking at the things coming through uh, it's a little bit of both, but we definitely have some very robust uh, data tools to pull all of the information from Project One. So we can pull up a pie chart and see what's the most popular color, what's the least popular color, how has that performed over time. So all of those tools are there. And then again, it's the uh, it's just using your own eyes and your feet to walk back onto the, the factory floor and see some of the things that are coming off there. And that's sometimes where you know you see something that might inspire you to play with those colors in a new way and bring that to an actual mainline product. Huh. So have you ever had a, a customer custom paint scheme that you thought was just super, super cool? You basically just sort of, you know, integrated that completely into production for the following year. Like, you know, like if, if that sort of thing were to happen, like, would you contact the customer and be like, you know, Hey, so this project, one thing that you came across, it's really cool. We want to use it. Would you mind? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it hasn't uh, actually played out precisely like that, where it came back to, oh, this was the the one thing. But sometimes, um, for instance, full fade in Project One, that's the uh, opportunity to take two colors blended together. And uh, we curate those colors. We know which colors are going to fade well together, and we don't want to put anything in the program that wouldn't look good. But in an example of that, I think there have been some, even just here recently, where just the Trek logo color wasn't something that I had the time to prototype all 50 colors onto there, but just seeing one that looked just right and blended the Trek logo between two different body colors, I was able to say, hey, that's going to work. I'm going to play with that, prototype it a little bit more, and then propose it for a mainline bicycle. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, how far in advance do you have to figure out stuff like this? Like when you see a bike that's released, you know, let's say you know, there are a bunch of bikes coming out now, for example. Um, how long ago was that paint scheme and graphics pattern and everything, how long ago was that established? I'd say in most cases, you're looking backwards in time, probably about two years. Um, from, like even for colors? Yeah, even for colors, um, especially especially so for colors. Um, in some regards, we can be nimble if we want to change a color in Project One and Waterloo. That's an easier thing to do. But if we want to make sure that all of our bicycles match across the different suppliers and then that those colors look really good with the Bontrager helmets and shoes and clothing and apparel. There's a lot of color portfolio management that goes on to make sure that when we say Viper Red on a bike in Waterloo, it looks exactly like Viper Red on a helmet coming out from Bontrager. So there's a lot of thinking ahead and uh, making sure that we can develop the color to be super accurate and super uh, producible. So with the colors, you know, at the most two years, sometimes shorter, but yeah, we really are looking a ways out and back to the idea of trend forecasting. You really have to understand where people's behaviors are going because you're, you're constantly looking into a crystal ball of what is somebody going to want a year from now or two years from now crazy i mean it just blows my mind that you have that you have to think about that stuff that far in advance just in, even in terms of like color preferences can you recall any time in recent memory when like someone's really just got it wrong like like something like a color that just completely flopped yeah i can i can recall a few looking back um you know uh, even maybe four or five years ago i remember this one bike that we'll just say somebody called it a woofer and forever forever on we refer to that color uh, as that. So, you know, there have been some hits and misses. Um, 
But I think where you want to miss is when you're going deep with color. You never want to miss when you're only op offering a what we call a color A. So the one basic option that's going to be the most readily available. Where we want to take those chances, and it's okay to swing and miss sometimes, is when you're looking for the things that are on trend and developing. And you know, we like to think we do a pretty good job, but sure, there's always a, a case where you come out with the woofer and you wish you could change that. Right, and I guess by definition, I mean you said that you know you do those on, on models where you have a little bit more of you know a little more wiggle room, I guess, so to speak, in terms of you know sales volume and pricing and that sort of thing, then. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we're seeing, too, that people want more color options. So uh, ourselves and other brands are going into color C and D territories. And I think what's really fun, too, is seeing some emerging categories, places like Cyclocross has always been really um, receptive to color and different changes. And I think the gravel market is, uh, in particular, also a place where they are open to some new color combinations that we maybe hadn't seen on a traditional road bike before. Uh, coming back to kind of the performance thing, I mean, paint, uh, I mean, paint isn't just an aesthetic or visual thing. I mean, there are some performance aspects of it. And I guess mostly I'm thinking about, you know, kind of a lot of the weight meanies out there because paint can be heavy, especially if you use a lot of it and especially if the, the, the graphics and stuff are kind of complex. Um, is that something that you talk about very much uh, internally? Because I know, you know, like years ago, um, what was it called? I think you had this thing called, I think it was E5 Vapor Coat, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, and it was basically, uh, you know, a five gram paint job on, uh, I think it was the, the Madone back then. And it was something that was specifically conceived to have minimal finishing and, and minimal weight. Um, is that something that we're going to maybe see more of, or is that kind of going away? Like how, how does that work? And I guess what are the ramifications of offering that sort of thing in general? Like how hard is that to do? Uh, definitely weight is a consideration anytime that you're adding paint and decals onto something. So we're aware of it and we have enough knowledge to know, um, that some processes are going to add and that's going to be detrimental, um, in some cases. So, Certainly, we are weighing frames uh, in their raw state and then looking what happens when we add paint to it. And sometimes we're formulating that paint to cover better with less uh, application. So sometimes to get a really bright color, you might need to put base coats underneath it. Um, and that just helps the vibrancy of a color. So we're always looking at ways, how can we formulate a paint to not require as much base coat um, which will yield, um, in some cases, a better product as well, too. So uh, particularly with the team as well, like that's a place where weight really matters. So um, we're always weighing and thinking about that process. And I do think, you know, back to like, is that something you'll see more of? I think keeping consideration of lightweight models um, for the people who care about that. And then also there are people who don't really care if their paint's going to add an extra 20 grams, 40 grams, or something like that. They want it to look amazing. So again, it's that that breadth and that range um, that the customer has. You're always trying to make sure you're satisfying both needs. Got it. Oh man, like you know, you're 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 casting off 20 to 40 grams. I mean, the weight weenies are up in arms right now. Um, but spe speaking of the weight weenies and and how much paint weighs, I mean, I guess I had always been under the impression um, that sort of lighter colors, I guess, almost white and spe uh, specifically kind of tends to weigh more just because you have to, it, it doesn't cover as well. 
Um, I mean, if someone really specifically wanted, you know, a light, the lightest bike that they can get and, you know, say they don't really have the, the ability to go with something like an E5 vapor coat, what, like, what should they pick? Like, should they go for a darker color or a lighter color? Yeah, you, uh, you're correct in that, that sometimes white maybe needs more coverage. So, uh, in general, I'd say a darker color is going to be better. So go for the darker color and, uh, you'll start to see more Ralph carbon offerings. So anytime you're seeing that, you're really looking at just very minimal clear coat over something. So that raw carbon option, um, if you're looking at a carbon fiber model, that's going to be your, uh, your lightest weight scheme. I mean, so, you know, we've been talking all this stuff about, you know, colors and schemes and that sort of thing. And, and as interesting as things have gotten, uh, from mainstream brands, I mean, especially from something, someone like Trek and I mean, it's, it's a lot of sales volume and a lot of bikes. So you do have to kind of play the safe card, uh, to a certain extent, but you know, as far as you personally being a designer, I'd imagine that, you know, a lot of times there are things, well, we already talked about this. There are things you absolutely would love to do, but you just can't pull off in production. So, I mean, how often do you get to just completely go to town on something with zero regard for cost or intricacy or time required, that sort of thing? Actually, quite often, um, as much as we're, you know, looking at this huge uh, portfolio of bicycles and supplying to, to everybody, there are countless opportunities to just design and go to town, uh, whether that's on, you know, a personal project, your own art bike that you want to work on, uh, more often than not for athletes, for all of our different um, riders from Trek Segafredo and special one-off uh, rider bikes to the C3 team and different opportunities uh, to just work individually with one person and deliver their dream bicycle. And then we also have Project One Ultimate, which is a tool for anybody who wants to basically unlock or access a whole new level of customization to essentially get whatever they want on a bicycle the sky's the limit. Um, we have that program where we can match a designer with a customer and they sit down one-on-one -on -one and work together what they want. And that's a super rewarding experience too, to just play a part of bringing somebody else's dream bicycle to life. Cool. All right. Well, Micah, I guess if I ever find myself buying a, a truck bike and coming across a giant bucket load of money, I will, I will <laughs> get in touch with you and see if I can work with you on a Project One Ultimate bike. So thanks a ton for all the insight. This was uh, super interesting. And like I said, this is something I've been wondering about for years and years. So uh, I appreciate you satisfying my curiosity. Absolutely, James. It's been uh, a joy to talk about it. Always love uh, chatting bicycles and color and design. Cool. Thanks again, Micah. See ya. Yep. Take care. All right, guys. Well, you would think that at this point, it might make sense for me to ask everyone here kind of how they went about choosing the paint and graphics on our own bikes. Since, you know, Zach, Kaylee, you both have custom mosaic titanium bikes and I've got a custom seven. Uh, but the thing is, uh, Zach and Kaylee, your, your custom mosaics don't have any paint on them. <laughs> My custom seven titanium and carbon bike has uh, no paint on it. And, uh, Dave, your personal Cannondale Cat 12 is black. black. So, so um, is so, so on my mountain it, bike. It, it seems kind of safe yeah. to say that basically none of us have a single artistic or creative bone between us. Uh, however, I mean, I have other bikes. However, it's fair. Kaylee, your wife also has a custom mosaic, and uh, yep. I've seen it before. It's pretty awesome. 
And hers is definitely a lot more colorful. In fact, I think we should maybe even feature that as the headline photo for this episode. Let me but, go take a photo of it. Well, I, I dare say you could probably do that. I could do that. Uh-huh. But <laughs> I'm curious, how did she go about figuring out what to do there, seeing as how you basically, like you're literally starting with a blank canvas, titanium canvas, I guess in this case. So what do you do? Like colors, patterns, what? It was kind of intimidating. So she actually was not involved in that process at all because that bike was a surprise. That bike was a Christmas present. And so frame was in a box under the Christmas tree a couple years ago and was totally ready to go. So I had to do all that on my own, which was extra terrifying because, you know, then I had to pick the colors for her, which I I wouldn't say that I really enjoyed. I was lucky enough. I, I can't really claim... So basically, it's this sort of tri-panel design. It's like kind of a, a, it's largely white with three bl- like blocks of color underneath the top tube and the down tube, and then uh, on the inside of each fork leg. It's really cool looking. I wish I could claim sort of any um, real inspiration coming from myself for that, but really, it's it's our, our friend Zach Lee, who is a designer here in town, good friend of mine, one of my neighbors. Um, does all the graphics, for example, for Donnelly, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with those. He's, he does a lot of stuff in the bike industry. And I just saw Zach today, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so he, he worked with Mosaic to sort of like create some rough templates, and then I worked with him and Aaron Barcheck over there to pick some colors and things like that based off of the colors that I knew that my wife liked. And But yeah, it, is, it, was, it was daunting. It was like when you have a completely blank canvas like that, where do you even start? And for me, that was basically, okay, pick pick one of a couple different designs that Zach kind of worked through and then start with one color that I really liked and thought she would really like and then find some colors that kind of worked with that because it was this tri-panel design. So there's going to be two other colors sort of sitting right next to a big block of that one color. It was, yeah, it was kind of terrifying. Worked out great though. Great looking bike. However, I will say that um, it's now four, I want to say four years old. And you know, getting getting a little chipped up, getting a little dinged up. It's it's you know, it's been ridden a fair amount, and we're actually thinking about just blasting all the paint paint off because that's the cool thing about tie is that you can just blast all the paint off and just have a brush tie or you know what a, a matte tie finish because she really likes that as well. And so we may actually be taking all the paint off soon anyway. Hmm. So then there is not a creative bone between five of us. There. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. All right. Well, anyway, back to this Amanda. Uh, so while we were playing this interview, Zach, you said that you actually have some thoughts on this new Amanda. What, what are you thinking here? What's going on? I mean, I on? think first, I think the Amanda, it looks really good. And in terms of bikes in that category, it kind of ticks all the boxes. But an interesting thing to me is, so if you're looking at this from a racing perspective, it's a light bike, but it has to be 6.8 kilos. And if everyone's on a 6.8 kilo bike and they're all kind of aero, then no one's on an aero bike. So why can't we just stick with like, just everyone agree. <laughs> we're going to ride bikes that are more comfortable, lighter, have more tire clearance. And it's all the same. It's like if, if one you team has like an aero helmet UCI and no one else does, then they have an advantage. But when everyone has aero helmets, then no one has an aero helmet. So you might as well just wear more comfortable helmets. Yeah. Like if the whole Peloton agreed, okay, it's hot out. We're going to wear helmets with vents today. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is great. This is another, another, um, Another reason why the riders should unionize. Yeah. They can like get together the morning of and be like, all right, listen, everybody, nobody wears 
nobody wears the Arrow helmet because if you wear the Arrow helmet today, then we all have to wear the Arrow helmet, and it's hot outside. We don't want to do that. They just, you know, got to hold the line. The problem is, oh, it would take one person to be like, I forgot my non-Arrow helmet, and then everyone's wearing an Arrow helmet, right? Racers don't travel to the race with the helmet, though. Yeah, it, but the thing is, there always is that one person, right? You, you're going to have the one person who's going to show up on like a time trial helmet that morning, and everyone's going to be like, dude, what, what is your deal here? You know, that, that that's how that, but, but I guess kind of staying on this topic, I mean, it, it is, I don't think anyone will argue with the idea that as far as bike races go, I mean, it is still obviously a competition between people, right? Um, but there is also this idea that, I mean, the bike does make a difference, even though it's, you know, it can be kind of small in certain cases for sure. Um, but it, I mean, it, there is this concept basically of this kind of arms race between riders and teams, right? Like everyone's looking for a little bit of an edge. But I mean, yeah, I mean, Dave, as you were saying, I mean, it is kind of like, you know, kind of like the goal of the UCI in philosophy anyway, is sort of to put everyone on equal footing equipment wise. Like if, mm. if, you know, John Vatier way back when, from when he was doing the UCI technical commission thing, if he had his way, I mean, they would, everyone would be on, you know, lugged steel bikes with, you know, inch and a quarter down tubes and inch and eighth top tubes and one inch seat tubes. And that would be it. Right. And like everyone would just be on the same equipment. Yeah. Like the yeah. old Merck's hour record rules. Exactly. That'd be sweet. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, like, obviously, innovation is a good thing. And, at, like, five years ago, some teams had massive advantages because their, their aero bikes were dramatically different and better than yeah. teams without. But now, like, pretty much no one makes bad bikes these days. I, 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 I don't think all the bikes are a... equal either in the in the World Tour. I think I think there is still some... Technolo uh, technology gaps out there um, when you look at what the various teams are on and I think there's also quite a few teams that are either stubborn or naive to to the the benefit out there to being on something a bit uh, a bit faster or a bit lighter or a bit uh, a bit more aerodynamic yeah I remember hearing a story from one of the I think it was one of the Canon one of the EFDS's maybe actually even come from Cannondale when they went in and pitched you know, an aero road bike. When Cannondale went in and pitched an aero road bike to those DSs, and they were like, "No, no, no! Look at the math. Like, if you have a dude in a breakaway, mm. they're doing forty more watts on the front, <laughs> like forty, massive, right? The difference between the you know the two bikes are the two options, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, you see a huge number of riders on EF starting to ride an aero Cannondale, right? It makes perfect sense." But you're right. Like there were those gaps for a while. I mean, there were teams without an aero bike. There still are some teams without a good aero bike, which mm -hmm. is yeah. kind of crazy in this day and age. A, a team at that level to be without a bike that is, you know, the math suggests so much faster. Uh, and now I think the big gap is like teams with one of these sort of aero and light bikes versus teams that just have a light bike and just have an aero bike, right? So do you have a new tarmac or a new Amanda? Or do you just have, you know, like Trek last year where they had to pick a Madone yeah. or a Mondo and the Madone was never 6.8 kilos. Yeah, right? or they're doing silly things to the Madone by swapping onto it a regular stem and bar to save right. a few hundred grams. And, and then losing some of the aero benefits. Too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you foresee a day where we, uh, where we merge, where we see those two bikes converge, where the teams, you know, like like what Astana is on with, uh, with the Willia or... Uh, with Scott at the moment, I guess, in the Addict, where, you know, like, it's just the one bike for the whole season. Do you think that's I mean, going to become more of a common trend? I bet Trek is almost entirely yeah. on Amandas this year. Yeah. I mean, maybe Madone for, like, pan-flat classic races, but... Yeah. Or, like, yeah. you know, the people who are perpetually at the front of the race. Yeah. 
But I think, yeah, anybody, any any team leader is probably on a Mondo like every stage of every yeah. race all year. And then, yeah, the only the only riders that are probably on Madones are, yeah, A, either super flat classics or... Dude sitting on the front for four hours before they pull the plug. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yep. I think... I think most people would be in agreement that even though companies, most you know, the bigger ones for sure now, you know, while they do have like a full blown aero road bike, and then now like it's kind of like mild aero road bike, um, you know, the general feedback that I've heard from from teams and I guess riders specifically is that while they know that in theory and on paper the full aero bike is faster in a lot of situations. You know, in, in these races that we're talking about, still, I mean, like the key moments are coming on usually like these big climbs or like the really steep, hard section of a climb. And in that moment, you want the light and stiff bike, not the aero bike, because the aero bike is still just heavier. Yeah, it's yeah. the lightweights with Ineos last summer argument, right? We've discussed this a number of different times, I think, but that's, you know, I'm not sure how valid that argument really is if you went and sort of did the actual math on it. But it's certainly, you know, it's it's worth it's remembering that half the battle here is having a bike that the rider is confident in in the moment, right? Yeah. And if that's the light bike and the stiff bike, then that's what they're going to go with. And like there's probably a placebo For element sure. there as well, right? Like there there is, you know, the psychological element of feeling like your bike is lighter or superior is, is huge. And it's something that actually, you know, has been proven time and time again that can actually impact performance. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it could just be as simple as that, you know, that, you know, so the technical advisor of uh, Team Ineos knew that putting lightweights on the bike wasn't actually going to make them faster, but, you know, the riders would feel otherwise. All the riders are so stoked. Yeah, I mean, I, I talked to a number of them, and they're all extremely excited about lightweights yeah. and riding lightweights. So you're like, all right, well, if it makes you feel better, and I mean, you like, go faster. <laughs> like, having the latest, greatest bikes, too, is great, but, like, not aero and light bikes still win races. Like, look at Betty All at Flanders last year. He won solo on literally the most traditional road bike that you could put in the field yep. and the math and marketing would say that he shouldn't win because he doesn't have an aero bike yeah. but he won solo but I, mean, if, I don't know if it's so much that you know it, they say that he wouldn't have won i think it's more that you know i don't i don't think anyone would have said that he wouldn't have won i think it's more that he you know maybe wouldn't have had quite as big of a gap at the end and like you know mathematically you can prove that or you could say that, you know, he was, you know, having to put out a little bit more power because he was on a non-aero frame than he maybe would have. But the fact of the matter remains that he had a big enough gap at that time that it didn't matter. Yeah. I mean, um, like, to the opposite, my girlfriend, Ruth, when she won nationals last year, she was on the Madone. And had she been on an Amanda, there's a good chance that she would have got caught. Yeah. She literally got caught 10 feet after the finish line. Yeah. Yeah. That so, was a great finish. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Does she get to state national champion another year? Do we know yet? I don't know. I mean, it's either they don't have nationals, and they're like, okay, you didn't get to wear it this year. Wear it next year. Yeah. Or they have nationals, but all the fast people are in Europe. So right. someone that you've never heard of wins nationals and is the national champion. Oh, uh, you know, I didn't even think about that. Has she been able to really wear that jersey in competition at all yet? She won two down under. Yeah, two down under. Oh, that's right. That's right. like second half of last year. Yeah. Uh, it seems like so long ago. But I mean, like in this calendar. Just that little race at the beginning of the year she won. But the UCI already said if I think they canceled Junior Track Worlds and they're like anyone that won Junior Track Worlds last year can wear the rainbow jersey next year because we've canceled this. So if USA Cycling were to cancel Nationals, I would hope that they can still wear the jersey. 
By the way, um, I don't know if you can hear this, listeners out there, but it is dumping rain outside, and <laughs> it's kind of loud. There's like a tin roof <laughs> in Zach's <shop>. insulation. <laughs> so hear. it's uh, you can, yeah, I you can hear the rain. garbage. So if you hear sort of a low, rainy noise in the background, it's not raining at your house. It's raining here. Yeah, just FYI. Well, uh, I think we have established on multiple occasions now that this is not exactly a super pro outfit that we're running here. <laughs> so. <laughs> So be it. We've got garbage trucks and rain and dogs and all sorts of things. And you know, hey, that's that that's just how we roll here. All right. That's just how we <laughs> no. roll. We just want we want listeners to really, you know, get the full experience. Just feel like they're in the room with us, like they're just yeah. hanging out in the shop, talking shop. I mean like a full sound booth as in in the queue for you guys. Uh, <laughs> oh, by, by the way, by the way, Zach, about, we once, talked once, about we talked yeah. about getting a studio somewhere, but yeah, Zach, once it. it is safe for all of us to to you know kind of be in big groups again, I think what we're going to do, we're all going to come in to your shop. We're going to come to Boulder Groupetto with a whole bunch of you know foam soundboard, like the whole like foam egg crate thing. We're going to line your entire shop with that <laughs> stuff and make it soundproof. Sounds so, great. We could we totally just, just like old bar tape or something, <laughs> including all your Allen keys. <laughs> oh man. Right now, it's just covered in uh, Ruth's jerseys that she's won. Yeah, so, excellent. That'll work too. That'll yeah, work. Of which there are a lot. Okay. Yeah. Many, many leaders' jerseys. All right. Shall yep. we move on to what bike should I buy? Because we haven't done a what bike should I buy in quite a while here now. Let's do it. Today's request for advice comes from Anthony Swan in Melbourne, Australia, the global headquarters of Cycling Tips. He says he loves to go fast and is looking for an aero carbon gravel bike. An aero carbon gravel bike for smoother gravel and dirt roads. Somewhere around five to six thousand Australian dollars. He's open to both big brands and little ones, and is also open to buying used. Dave, I will start with you. What would you suggest for our friend Anthony here? So my take: uh, the, a lot of the gravel around Melbourne is actually pretty well kept, and when he says smooth gravel, it actually is smooth. Uh, you know, you can ride it quite comfortably on you know twenty-eight mil tires, thirty mil tires. So, from my point of view, is Perhaps the ideal bike isn't a full-blown gravel bike, but more something that trends towards the racier end, something more in the all-road category. Uh, but then that price point does confuse things. So the price point kind of eliminates bikes like the Open or uh, you know the new 3T Explorer Race Max, I believe they call it. Um, but it does keep them open to something like the Cervelo Aspero, which could be quite a good pick. Right, because based on current exchange rates, 6,000 Australian basically buys you a box of Tim Tams. Yeah, but a family size pack. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> good, good, good. Kaylee, what are your thoughts? You know, I, I yeah, I kind of go the same direction. I go to, because I, yeah, I've ridden a little bit of gravel as around Melbourne as well, and it's yeah, it's not super rough. In fact, it's in a lot of ways, it's kind of similar to some of the gravel that we have here in Boulder. If you if you just sort of looked at the dirt roads here in Boulder that are relatively well maintained, you know, there aren't big chunks. There's not stuff that's going to flat uh, a smaller tire, and so there's so many road bikes these days that will fit a 32 or even a 34 that that is kind of the direction i'd almost consider going um granted you kind of limit yourself if you ever did want to go do something rowdier but at the same time if you know if you're going to spend a decent amount of time on pavement you're going to spend a lot of time on just smooth gravel i think that that's a pretty good option uh and you know there's there's there's, frankly, there's a million options uh, if you are in looking in that particular space because almost every single disc road bike that has come out in the last year and a half or so kind of fits that mold. Uh, 
in that price range, like a even like a tarmac disc is going to fit a 32. You know, like yeah. if that if you think that's enough tire, that's a sweet bike and is definitely super versatile and on the more on the obviously on the more road side of things, but may function just fine. I, I think I would need to have a little bit more information about exactly what services are going to be ridden but that's my initial reaction is like something like a tarmac you know just well, and then put a 32 on it i guess to clarify i should maybe have given this information earlier on he said he's going to be riding basically class one or i guess grade one grade two and grade three gravel grade three being what he what we've described as smooth gravel and it sounds like you know from from dave having ridden a bunch of that stuff around there i mean it, it, yeah it does sound like a lot of the stuff that we have around here in boulder which is yeah, I mean, pretty smooth and pretty good conditions. Yeah, they're actually they're actual gravel roads designed for uh, you know car access and not for drives. So, yeah, in that sense, you can ride a road bike on them. Zach, any suggestions here? I mean, I would kind of the same as everyone, just like figuring out exactly how how much gravel you're going to be doing and how comfortable you are on that for how big of a tire you need. Um, if it's something you can ride a road bike on. Then I, if if arrow is important, then I would do something maybe like, like a Madone. You've got the ISO speed seat posts for vibration, and you can fit a big tire in there. Like Pete Setna one Belgian waffle ride on it last year. I've seen people fit thirty five mil tires on them. Um, that's a but, heck. That's a heck of an arrow gravel bike. Yeah, right but if there. you're definitely gonna <laughs> be doing actual gravel, not just dirt roads, then I would lean towards pick any gravel bike. They're all more or less they all more or less do the same thing yeah and then if you care about aero then throw some carbon wheels on them they're going to be a bit deeper yeah something like you know those envies that you love james something in that range that's going to be you know it'll really change the feel of the bike and make it quite a bit quicker even without aero profiles on the on the frame itself all right i am going to go in a slightly different direction here with my recommendation and because anthony says he is open to buying used and when he says aero gravel, still the first thing that comes to mind for me is a used 3T Exploro. Ooh, I yeah. don't know that I can recommend that. <laughs> don't You don't know if you can what? Recommend that. Oh. Just the first gen ones I just can't get on board with. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll, we'll get into the quirks of that bike in a minute. So just <laughs> just hear me no, out here. Hear me it out. It has some. <laughs> so that, that bike, I mean, the, the geometry is pretty good. Um, like it, it is, you know, one of, you know, basically the only kind of quote unquote aero gravel bikes out there. Um, it would function quite well as a straight up road or all road bike, depending on what wheels you stuck on there. Um, and there is a lot of room to put bigger tires on there. If he decided that he does want to kind of continue going in that direction and maybe kind of do a little bit more off tarmac exploring. Um, I mean, yeah, there are issues on that bike as far as like the way they do the through axles because the, the threaded ends are not actually secured in the fork or frame. So when you undo the through axle, the, the, the ends sort of just fall off and on the rear that the trailer the falls off, um, <laughs> which is pretty, pretty silly. Um, yeah. it has a, you know, integrated wedge type seat post binder, which can be kind of problematic. Uh, terrible. But no, See multiple terrible. of that particular one crack. If you over tighten it just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, spring. yeah. Well, I mean, hey, like I said, there are caveats. I mean, here, the right? thing I would say, if you're buying a used 3T, I would definitely want to do a really good inspection on it. I would say, in terms of gravel bikes, they're not exactly what I would call burly. So, if someone's actually ridden it on gravel and ridden it hard and are selling it because they're getting a new bike, the chances of it being not broken seem low. Seem, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Man. So Kaylee said that, not me. <laughs> 
All right, so and, assuming that Anthony is able to find a 3T locally that has not been ridden super hot on gravel and is not cracked or broken, and he's okay with parts falling off it when he removes the wheels. Great pick, Other James. Thing he great pick. James, James is sticking with it. <laughs> God, I'm, getting, I'm getting skewered here. So, I mean, the seat post head on the stock, the stock seat post head on the old Explorer, I mean, I would say it was pretty terrible. It's got that, like, super goofy double-splined tube arrangement thing from 3T. But it has but now, so gel around it. It's terrible. It's absolutely horrible. But the 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 new it's terrible, the new but you should post, buy it. Yeah, but the new seat post from the new Explorer Race Max with the Richie one bolt head that's super easy to use. That seat post fits in that frame. So all all he would have to do is get a new seat post and make how sure how much is a seat post? Good. And then that could work pretty well. That's like I'm two not, three hundred dollars for a carbon post. Yeah, I'm not trying to rag on three T too much here, but I just love the fact that after years and years and years of them producing seat posts, the way they finally solve their seat post clamp is to use someone else's. <laughs> it's, it's quite ironic. <laughs> I, I mean, well, that's that's true. I mean, it yeah. it is it is extremely ironic that tr that the three T does have a you know they've done seat posts for a really long time, and yeah, now their new bike comes with a Richie. So. Hmm. Well, list yeah. of list of companies I'm going to be getting emails from next week. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Three T, SRAM denying Trek. that they that they make bad front derailers. Trek. You know, basically not, everyone that we talked about. If in, I'm not getting at episode. least three emails per episode, we're doing something wrong, right? Like that's yeah. that's. <laughs> sorry, Three T. I like that you think out of the bar. Yeah, I'm I'm okay. I'm actually I'm changing my mind here. I'm changing my mind. So. What was our rider's name again, James? Anthony Swan. Anthony. I think I think Anthony doesn't actually want or need aerodynamics in his gravel bike. That's what I think. Bite your tongue. I <laughs> I think that Anthony actually would have a lot of fun on a gravel bike. I'm ch I'm totally changing my pick here by the way. Would have a lot of fun on a gravel bike that is actually more capable than he realizes he needs. Uh, and I say that because again, I have ridden some like the Yara trails and stuff in Melbourne and they're super fun on even like a, a hardtail cause they're, they're single track, right? So he should get a mountain bike. I'm saying that <laughs> at the very least, like a real gravel bike and then, and then, you know, just try, try something for me, Anthony, try something real gravel bike, 40 mil tires. They can be pretty slick. You know, um, what was the what was the ones we recommended to our buddy Nick the other day? The Torino Speeds, the Vittoria Torino oh, Speeds. Yeah. Great, sort of like pretty slick tire. Try that. It's not as slow as you think it's going to be. In fact, a 40 mil at the right pressure is going to roll just as fast on a lot of surfaces as a 32. And you can go dive into the Yara Trails off of your perfectly smooth gravel and into fun little single track you can explore areas you've never been to before you can improve your bike handling skills and just have more fun and leave the aerodynamics behind leave the leave the road that the the oversized road bike behind get yourself a real gravel bike again there's a million options in that price range um i think the new diverge looks really sweet and they've what got if, a bunch of options down in that price range i think what if he wants to gravel race those aerodynamics, he's gonna lose. Then, then I think you put the you put the fancy wheels on. Yeah, yeah get get yourself get yourself some fancy wheels, and run fast wheels. But you know, get a bike that'll fit. Get a bike that'll fit a forty five, because you never know. You you might want to just go start exploring. I, that, right. I'm, so, change, I'm changing my mind. So, so in other words, he should go find himself 
a used and good condition 3T Explorer. Yes. You, no. You're making my case for me. Crickets. Here. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe one with fewer quirks. Maybe like a used in good condition. Uh, I mean, open is essentially the same thing as the 3T. Open. Yeah. Just not arrow, but the derailleur hanger stays on. Which is a key. Yeah. Because the derailleur hanger, I think the open has a regular C post clamp on it too, doesn't it? The open, you can use whatever seat post you want. But but it has a regular seat post clamp on it, too. Oh, it? yeah, on the frame. Yeah, yeah, it's just a regular regular. There aren't too many of external. those open frames floating around in Australia, so picking one up used might be a, might be a struggle. True. Like I said, I, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, a lot of these, you know, from one of the bigger brands, they're going to have bikes in that 6,000 Aussie range. New Diverge, I mean, like super the one, sweet. The one you have, an aluminum checkpoint. Aluminum checkpoint, like aluminum super for sweet. gravel is all you need. Yep. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I think that given half a chance, something with a bit more versatility, a bit more ability to drop into some single track and have some fun, I think Anthony would, I think Anthony would like that. Leave the arrow behind. Leave the arrow to the roadies. Well, just don't spend do it. the money on a packet of Tim Tams. Yeah, or just buy some Tim Tams and call it a day. All right. Well, I think uh, at this Sound point, advice we have, from all we have made Anthony's decision very, very clear cut because we have recommended everything from just any sort of aero road bike to, to just a straight a up gravel bike to uh, Zach is recommending a hardtail, seemingly. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm not recommending this. A, I mean, if you have a hardtail at Barnes, it's essentially yeah. a drop bar. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm recommending a 3T Exploro used, which Zach is saying is going to be a ticking time bomb, apparently. Um, I'm saying so, a new Cervelo Aspero. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, so Anthony, basically, you should just probably go ahead and ignore all of us and go find someone who has some sort of cohesive opinion. <laughs> and then um, check back for the next episode. I think Dave's Cervelo Aspro is pretty good. It's, if we're, if it's we the voting, safe bet. It's kind it of, I'm kind of getting bet. bored of that bike because it's kind of like the, become the go-to gravel bike of 2020. But it's, Well, because uh, we've been recommending it for so many people because it does make a lot of sense for a lot of people. But, I mean, can he get that? Good that no-frills bike. <laughs> I think you can. I think they start at that price point, yeah. But I uh, honestly have no I idea. I'd, I'd have to do the math and the Aussie, yeah. Like, I mean, I think... Oh yeah, can you get like a 105 or an Altegra or whatever? I guess it would be GRX 600 build. Maybe I don't know <laughs> for that much. I know they. I haven't actually looked at what the price yeah. points are for this year, but uh, at six six grand feels about right for like an entry level Cervelo. So uh, I'm gonna say yes, but I'm Marin Gestalt X10. <laughs> no. No. No, no Marin what? Gestalt X10. 10 speed and mechanical disc brakes. Oh, Marin Gestalt. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the wheelie Marin machine. Well, within right? your budget. Right? But, yeah, no, um, but no. he did ask for fast. So, yeah. I mean, I would like, once again, figure out how much gravel you're going to be doing. Like, the gravel around here, we ride on road bikes all the time on 28 mil tires, and it's fine. Yep. So but, it, I, seriously, if, you know, if Anthony, particularly if Anthony is coming from the road and is not super confident, and based off of the fact that he's interested in aerodynamics, tells me he's coming from the road. No mountain biker in the history of time has been in, interested in, in aerodynamics. So if you come from the road and not super, I'm just assuming here, not super comfortable off-road on bad surfaces, something with a bit more tire is actually going to be faster in a lot of circumstances. And so I do think, you know, go bigger than you think. And, and don't worry you about get, the air Get arrow wheels, get an arrow helmet, get a skin suit, Yeah, be all set. Make way more difference than the frame. There we go. So not mm -hmm. a 3T. Get a Cervelo Aspero. 
Asparo. All right, then. Asparo. Fine, fine. Cervello, Aspero. Fine. Fine, you win. Fine, I give up. Yay. All right. One point for Dave. All right. Dave, Dave wins. Dave wins. Cervello, Aspero it is. All right. Should we wrap this up, guys? We should. Yeah. Okay. It's going to be that time. Yep. It's All right. still well, rain outside. With that, we are going to wrap up this episode. So thanks, as always, for listening. If you like what you heard today, please consider leaving a review or rating for us on iTunes, as it really does legitimately help more people find this podcast. Maybe even consider becoming a Velo Club member so that we can continue to keep making objective content and fun content like this, free from the burdens, the shackles of endemic advertising. And finally, make sure to subscribe on whatever format you prefer so you never miss another episode and I guess while we're at it, make sure to check out our usual weekly cycling tips podcast, the uh, freewheeling podcast from Abby Mickey, and then our daily news cycle podcast, where we quickly bring you up to date on the latest happenings in the world of cycling. And finally, Wade's new from the top podcast, where he digs into the origin stories of some of your favorite cycling brands. And as if we didn't have enough podcasts, Kaylee, I believe we have one more now, don't we? We have six podcasts now. Crazy talk. How how is that possible? <laughs> I think we make more podcasts than we write stories. Uh, that's entirely possible. Yeah. No, not quite. No. So actually, we do have a very exciting announcement on the podcast front, which is that we have a brand new podcast coming from Justin Williams and his Legion of LA team. So Justin's going to be creating this podcast. We're going to be handling the sort of hosting, editing, production, et cetera, et cetera. And it's going to be going in the main Cycling Tips podcast weekly channel. So if you're subscribed to that already, you will get Justin. Justin's Legion podcast is called From the Gun. Great name. As in like From the Gun in a crit. Uh, and that's going to be showing up over the next couple of weeks. I'm not exactly sure when the first episode will drop, but... Uh, yeah, we're just getting all that stuff sorted right now. I'm super, super excited about this one. I have one last request for all of our listeners out there. So, yes, you can leave us a rating, et cetera, et cetera. It helps people find us. It's great. You're probably listening to us on your phone. On your phone, if you open your podcast app, there's a little share button. Hit the share button and just send this podcast to some random bike riding friend and say, listen. Let's see if this works. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. You know, just hit the button, send it to the first, the last, we'll say the last person you rode bikes with. How about that? Send it to the last person you rode bikes with. Tell them they should listen. We appreciate it. The more people listen to this podcast, the happier James gets. He's really angry still. We're <laughs> working our way towards happy. We got a long way to go. I still got to pay for this tooth. <laughs> <laughs> That's my request. Thank you to everybody who listens to us week in and week out. We really do appreciate it. I think with that, it's time to go. It is time to go. So we will see you all in two weeks. Thanks again for listening. Bye. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.